the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. And this is the form of release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. To his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother, because it is called the Lord's release. Of a foreigner, you may require it. You shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother, except when there may be no poor among you. For the Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. Only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe with care all these commandments which I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you just as he, as he promised you. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. Okay. At the end of every seven years, they're to do something with the debts that are owed to them. There is a debate about what this is saying. Is it saying that they were to totally cancel the debts? So every seven years you get a clean slate. You owe a certain amount of money, but after seven years you don't owe it anymore. Or is it saying there would be a one-year deferral on the repayment of the debt? That is another option that some people think may be in this passage. I'm not sure about which one of those two is correct. But at any rate, there is a remission in some way of the debt every seventh year. And if they obey, verse 4, there will be no poor among you. Verse 11, they won't obey, so the poor will never cease to be in the land. But if they had obeyed, there would be no poor among them, which reminds me a lot of the book of Acts. When in Acts chapter 4 and verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. And you know why? Because people even sold property to be able to provide for the needs of their brethren. The idea of the generosity, the willingness to give, the willingness to sacrifice, the, the, the attitude of wanting to serve those who are in need is what would cause God to bless them. So every seventh year, in some sense, there's a release of debts. Comments and questions? <coughs> 7 through 11. There is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Beware, lest there be a wicked thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release, is at hand, and your evil, your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin in him. You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works, and in to which you, you put your hand. All to which you put your hand. For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor, and to your needy in your land. Okay, so the attitude here uh, is to bless the poor. Not harden your heart, not close your hand, but generously provide for the needs of those who have need. Generously <laughs> loan. Not saying the seventh year is coming up, I don't want to loan. You know, I'll lose that money. But be generous. Don't be grieved. Want to help. 
I, I think generosity is such a hard thing to want to do. Because you see that money and selfishly, I could do this or this or this or this. And so to be generous and want others to be blessed by what we have, that is just really a challenge. It works on my heart. It works a little bit on the idea that the Lord is the one who provides the money. I'm just the steward, so I need to use it in the way the Lord wants. It's really not my money. And it just really pushes us on the selfishness business. We have to seek to serve with the blessings God has given. It's almost like, why did God give me a blessing? You think about the passage in 2 Corinthians 8 that encouraged those with an abundance to supply the needs of those who are in need. So there would be a quality. That is, that all the needs would be supplied. Now, you think about God. He's the one that allocates the resources. If God wanted every every Christian, every Christian family, to have an adequate amount. Why didn't he just do it that way? He could have made it to where everybody had all the money they needed. Not necessarily all the money they wanted, but all the money they needed. God instead gave some people a surplus and other people a lack. Why did he do it that way? Because he wanted those that he gave a surplus to to help those that he gave the need to. He thought that was a better way to achieve the equality. Maybe he thought there was something we get out of giving Maybe he thought there was something we'd get out of receiving. But that's the way God designed that. So God intends for Christians that he provides generously for to be generous in providing for others, and particularly here for their Israelite brethren. Comments and questions? What are some ways, like, maybe people who would consider themselves not to have very much money, how would they be, how could they find ways to apply that? Well, if somebody was the one who had a lack, he could receive it with thanksgiving. I don't know that every person would apply this. What would you do if you were a slave, for example, a servant? You made nothing. Well, you're not going to be able to be generous in that way. And so I don't know that God had expectations that everybody would be able to be generous in the same way. Certainly we would say there's other ways of being helpful and caring about people. But the generosity would be for those who had the ability to do that. The problem is, you know what our problem is with generosity? Theoretically, we'd all love to be generous if we didn't have to spend so much money on everything else we want. (laughs) Or to pay for everything else we have wanted. Isn't that true? I mean, you know, all of us in theory would be generous. But in practice, our greed limits our opportunity to be generous. Yes? I think we can also uh, be tempted to harden our hearts to the point that we think that when we see someone who's poor, our automatic reaction is either one, they're lazy, or two, um, they are suffering as a consequence of the simple actions they've done. And I wouldn't say that there isn't truth to that. There is at, at times. But, you know, sometimes I think we forget that sometimes life happens. You know, look at Joe. You know, this, it wasn't the fault of, and the heated wrong that um, caused him to suffer. You know, life happens. You know, and uh, that's true today as well. Certainly, that there there certainly are bad reasons to be in need. The Bible talks about those. Second Thessalonians three talks about people who didn't want to work. They preferred to take advantage of generosity. And that's certainly not right. He said if somebody refuses to work, then don't let him eat. Don't, don't provide for somebody who doesn't want to work. 
Not everybody who's in need is in that category. And if we stop and think about it, we've been applying some other things spiritually. What about people's spiritual needs and providing for them to be taught and, and things like that? That's another way we can be generous in serving in something that matters even more than their physical situation. Joe. The beauty of this principle of Tim Kevaniti was played out in Boaz's life with Ruth, and it's such a beautiful application of the providence of God and his mercy and compassion. And Boaz was a wealthy, wealthy man, and Ruth did not even know he was related to her, and yet he provided and protected and was in, she was in, ended up being in the lineage of our Lord, and I just see the, the principle of God always being there and providing for the least. And she was a widow who wasn't even a Jew, she was a Gentile, she was a foreigner, and God still made provision for her. Yes, and Boaz is a wonderful example of generosity in that. Chad? Uh, each of those laws, as funny or as restrictive as they may seem, were meant to make the people more like God. Yes. And so we always feel these rules are so oppressive on us, but we don't think about how this is supposed to change us to be like God, and that, that should be our focus and not a focus on self. Yes. Great point. Seth? Uh, <clears throat> it's really easy to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 9 and say, do not say in your heart that it's because of my righteousness that God has blessed me so much. Um, you know, and, and just take the same warnings that God gave Israel and look at the, the blessings that God has given us, not because we've been so righteous, but because He He is just one who is willing to bless and we need to be more like Him. Yes. I did have one question here. Uh, it says, there will always be poor among you, but if you do what I say, there won't be poor among you. How... Well, I, I say he knew that they wouldn't do it, and therefore there will be. That's my thing. Chat. Just like them asking for a king, you know, they, God did not want them to have a king, but he puts that laws because he knew they asked for it. Yeah, certainly God didn't want them to have a king like the nations, which is what they were asking for. Other thoughts? Cut. It's just ironic to think about the idea of generosity. Uh, I think it's often the case that you see folks who have less being more generous than folks who have a lot. Maybe that should be convicting to us, uh, given the country that we live in and the general prosperity that we have. We should uh, think about that carefully. But the other thing is to think about that, I don't know, it's easy to call something generous because of the size of the gift. Uh, but I don't think that's the way God looks at it. Yeah, well, you think about... If we measure generosity more in the size of a sacrifice than the size of a gift, you know, if you give something that means nothing to you and you will never miss, was it really much of a gift? Didn't really show generosity, didn't really require much. Yeah. Good thoughts. Well, uh, 12 to 18. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty handed. 
you shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your winepress. From what the Lord your God has blessed you with, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and, that you, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I can give you this thing today. Who's uh, 18. And if, and if it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you, because he loves you and your house, since he prospers with you, and you shall take an all and thrust, thrust it through his ear to the door, and he shall be your servant forever. Also to your female servant you shall do this likewise. It shall not seem hard to you when you when you send him away free from you, for he hath been worth a double worth a double hired servant in serving you six years. And the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. Did you get that one? We know the law overall, but this contains an aspect that I don't know we've given a lot of attention to. You had this idea of a Hebrew slave. You could only enslave a man for six years. A Hebrew man, a fellow Israelite. On the seventh year, you had to let him go free. Now, there was this provision if he didn't want to go free. But in general, every seventh year, you must release your slaves. But he says more than that. Now, let me, let me say a word about slavery in this context. You know, I, I think we have a hard time understanding slavery in the Bible because we're accustomed to American slavery. American slavery was based on kidnapping. Kidnapping was a capital crime in the Old Testament. There's no excuse for what was done to provide slaves for this country. When we think about slavery in the Old Testament, think about somebody who got so far in debt they perhaps had to sell themselves uh, as a slave to pay off their debts or something like that. It was more an economic relationship. It was not... You know, a, a forced kidnapping and enslavement. So, but even at that, every seventh year you had to let your slaves go free. But you had to do more than that. What did you have to do? Yeah, you had to load him up with a lot of stuff to get started with. You know, that would help him reestablish his place in society and give him a better start at being viable economically. If you give him a bunch of stuff, can you imagine sending him out with nothing? There's no place to live, nothing to eat, you know, maybe the clothes on his back. You know, how's he going to get started? Well, you provide for it. He's been your slave. You give him a bunch of things to help him get started. Can you imagine that? Not only do you give him freedom, but you richly provide for him. You know, there's so much in the Old Testament and the new, but we're looking at the old right now, that really emphasizes generosity in various situations. You know, this idea of, well, I earned this, this is mine, I'm not sharing with anybody. Wow, that mentality just doesn't take in the Old Testament. Now, uh, he says, you shall remember that you were slave, and the Lord redeemed you. How many times in Deuteronomy does he go back to the Lord redeeming them out of slavery in Egypt as a basis for something that he's telling them to do? That is just so much a part of everything they think about. We've made that point other times. But the Lord's character and actions is our model. We are trying to become like God. So when we understand how God has acted and what he's done, what he's said, what his character like... That tells us what we're supposed to be like. We are trying to imitate Him. Which means we always need to remember what God's done. Not only to honor Him, which we 
what to do, but also to imitate him. So we need to be thinking more and just reflecting more on God. And a little while, in a little while, we'll sing a segment where we'll sing about God as the Redeemer, thinking more about His redeeming us as sort of the basis for how we behave as His redemption of the Israelites from Egypt. But now, you could have a slave who says, I don't want to leave. I want to stay here. I love you and I want to be your slave forever. Now, again, we might think, who would ever want to do that? We really value freedom. But there are some downsides to freedom, like you really need a job to provide for yourself. And, you know, you've got a lot of responsibility and it might not be so easy. Maybe it's better to stay on as a slave. You've got a really nice master. You know, it's like having permanent employment. Um, so there were times when they might say, no, I don't want to go out. And then you'd take him to the doorpost and with a, with a punch, with an awl, you'd pierce his ear. You know, we would pierce ears for other purposes, but uh, they pierced ears to uh, say you're a permanent slave. Maybe the idea of piercing the ear was the idea that you'd permanently heed, you permanently listen, you open a hole in your ear so that you'll always listen to the master's commands and obey them. Maybe that's the idea. And so that was a possibility. You know, we sing that song sometimes, uh, uh, you know, well, how does that go? Here's my ear. Here's my ear. <laughs> <laughs> you know, every once in a while, uh, your mind draws a blank. And for some reason or other, as I keep getting younger, that happens more often. <laughs> I don't know what that is. But, uh, but so, yeah, you know, the idea of taking ourselves to the Lord and letting Him uh, claim us as His servants. We want to belong to Him forever and serve Him permanently. All right, comments or questions on this section? Yes. I'm not so sure if this is a, a proper analogy or not, but being a slave must have had a certain amount of shame or something related to it. So when they were let go, providing for them gave them more of a comfort or made them feel better in society. And I guess the analogy I was thinking is that when someone sins and they repent and they come back, it's like in Second Corinthians when the man had come back, they were encouraged to... Um, welcome him back and forgive him and comfort him lest he should be swallowed up with much sorrow and I, I don't know if there's any you know comparison to when someone is in that slavery of sin and they come back and they repent that we need to you know load them up in a sense okay good good thought yeah definitely do yes <coughs> I think it's interesting um, not only uh, how this section talks about remember how God brought you out of Egypt when you look back in the Exodus account, when the Israelites left Egypt, God gave the Israelites favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and they plundered the Egyptians, and the Egyptians furnished them and lavished them with all those riches. And so here we get to see the Israelites carry out the same thing for their sins. Great point, yes. Uh, very good. Very good thought. Other thoughts? Dan? That is a, a beautiful picture here, because the Christ or God is the same thing with us. He frees, he liberates us. And that would be enough of a blessing, you know, but he also gives us tremendous spiritual blessings through the adoption of the Son, the giving of the Spirit, and uh, so on and so forth. Yeah, great, great thought as well. Certainly, uh, God has done a lot more than just giving us freedom. He's blessed us in every conceivable way. It, it's just, you know, you remember that story that Jesus told in Matthew 18 about the man who owed the impossible debt he was forgiven, and then he went out and refused to forgive the petty debt that somebody owed him. You know, when God has blessed us so generously for us to be stingy, 
in any sense with others. It's just outrageous when you really look at it that way. Just is this supposed to be a, bring any remembrance, like for them, about the story of Jacob and when he's working for Laban for seven years for each of his wives, and also for the livestock? Thing, eventually, it's does that have any relevance? I really thought about it, maybe. But we move on to thinking about the firstborn, verses 19 to 23. All the firstborn males that come to your herd and your flock, you shall sanctify to the Lord your God. And you shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You and your household shall eat it before the Lord your God year by year in the place which the Lord chooses. But if there is any defect in it, if it is lame or blind, or it has a serious defect, you shall sacrifice it. You shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You may eat it within your gates. The unclean and the clean person alike may eat it, as if it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat it. You shall pour it on the ground like what? Well, we know that the firstborn animals belong to God. They had to relinquish that possession to the Lord. <coughs> but since the firstborn belonged to God, they couldn't work the firstborn or shear the firstborn or, or somehow benefit by the firstborn before they gave it to God. You know, you couldn't get the work out of the animal as the firstborn and then when it's old and decrepit, now I'll give it to God. You know, if God claims the animal, then it must only be given to Him and you can't profit by that animal in any way. That's, that's the point that he's making uh, here. And then, if the firstborn animal would happen to be born defective, you know, lame, blind, or whatever, then you don't give that to God. You know, you only give God the best animals. So, if the firstborn is damaged, is defective in some way, then that makes it not sacred and not belong to God. Comments and thoughts on this? Yes, Jerry. Um, like, pretty, like, um, there were, like, two animals that come on. The first one was, like, kind of skinny, and the, the second one was, like, fat and, like, um, red. Would, um, would it be, like, right if you give him the second born? Well, I don't think he wanted the second born in that case. Just not being a uh, little fat wasn't, uh, wasn't a defect. Is it you, Josh? Um, what does, it, what does it mean when it says to sanctify it to God? Because it doesn't specify to sacrifice it to God. Is that what, is that what it means? I, I, that is what they did, but the idea is they commit it to God, and then the thing God wanted was to be sacrificed. Yeah, yes? Um, you may have answered this already, but um, both here and a couple times, and I think it was chapter 12 or 13, it said, when it's saying you donate the blood, it says to pour it out on the ground like water. Why? Or what does that mean? Yeah, I don't guess I really know other than don't make sure you don't use it, you know. Is there some other symbolism to that that I'm not thinking about? Okay. Other thoughts? Yes, just Does that have to do with like the imagery of God's wrath being poured out? I mean, maybe. I don't know. 
Alright, let's do one more section, and then we'll take a break. So, 16 verses 1 to 8. <laughs>